0: All right, well, Christmas is just three days away. How did that happen? Uh, This is our final Sunday now in our Advent series, The Sounding Joy. We will actually do one more song on Christmas Eve, so uh, I hope you all can make it for that. But this is our final Sunday looking at the lyrics of Christmas carols and the scriptures that inspired them. And today's carol is one that we haven't heard yet this morning. Uh, we, uh, we did sing it last week. It's a personal favorite of mine, and it is Ocum Come, Ocum Come Manuel. Uh, if last week's Little Drummer Boy was a little too non traditional for you, this one is the opposite. <laughs> this one has been around for a very, very long time. There's a very old practice in some branches of the church uh, of chant singing. And For centuries, uh, certain branches of the church have had this practice of gathering in the evenings for prayer services, and these meetings are called Vespers. And at Vespers, it's tradition to have certain chants being sung. And long ago, it became tradition to recite certain chants on the seven days leading up to Christmas at these Vespers services. And these chants would be in Latin, but I'm going to translate into English uh, for all of us, but uh, seven days before Christmas at Vespers, a chant would be said that would begin with, O Wisdom. On December 19th, a chant would begin that said, O Mighty Lord. On December 20th, a chant would start with, O Root of Jesse. On the 21st, O Key of David. On the 22nd, O Dayspring. On the 23rd, O King of the Nations, and on Christmas Eve, the 24th, O Emmanuel. Now, the beginning of each of these chants is a different title for Jesus. And if you're familiar at all with the lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, you know that each verse features one of these titles of the name of Jesus. Uh, We don't usually sing all seven verses because we would be here forever, right? But there are actually seven verses to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and they're based on these chants. So, this song has existed in the form of a Latin chant at least as early as the 1100s, almost a thousand years old. And from what I can gather, the carol kind of settled into the form that we know it now uh, in 1861. So, by 1861, it had been translated from the Latin and then put into this English paraphrase that had a nice meter to it, Uh, and coupled with the music that that we know. But it had been around in some form for almost a thousand years. So if this song has ever sounded kind of haunting and ancient to you, there's good reason for that. Now, in addition to being exceptionally old, this Christmas carol is a little different from any of the other ones that we have done so far, because there's no details in it about the night of Christ's birth. Uh, There's no mention of Mary and Joseph, or the baby being laid in a manger, or, or anything like that. And that's because technically this is not a Christmas song. This is an Advent song. It's about waiting for Christmas. It's not about the arrival of Christmas. And what it does is it expresses the longing that the people of Israel had for God to fulfill his promises and send the Messiah and make things right with the world. Now, at St. Paul's, I think we have sung this song multiple times every Christmas season. the whole time I've been here. And I've noticed it has a lot of language that could go over our heads. Uh, This is a song that's rich with allusions to scripture. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at all seven verses of this song. I promise we're going to try to go as quickly as possible. uh, And we're going to do our best to understand and appreciate what this is saying. So hopefully this song won't go over, over our heads quite as much. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this season of the year that encourages us to think about uh, the grand story that we're a part of, this grand story of of redemption and the way that you have entered into our world. And Lord, I pray that as we look at the lyrics to this ancient song, uh, that you would just illuminate it for us, God, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would help us to experience the wonder and awe that we should feel when we think about uh, what you have done and the way that you have worked throughout history. Uh, we give you thanks and we just ask that you would help us to attend to what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse one. O come, O come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Now, if you've been here over the last couple weeks, you know that we have talked about this word Emmanuel already, and hopefully you remember that Emmanuel means God with us, right? So, this carol is asking for the coming of God with us. Now, it's important for us to understand that when we ask God to be Emmanuel, we are not just asking for God to be present with us. Um, When the word Emmanuel is used, the with there has a deeper meaning. It's kind of like if a friend says to you, I'm with you. They don't just mean, well, I'm physically present next to you, right? They mean, I've got your back. And when God is Emmanuel, he is present, but he also has our backs. He's for us. He's with us and for us. Uh, And this song is sung from the perspective of, of Israelites long ago during a time when it felt like God didn't have their backs. Uh, In the Old Testament, there was this significant period of time when the Israelites were in exile, which means they had been forced out of their homeland, um, and they were living under the control of another nation. You might remember that back in the summer, we talked about the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel is all about this Israelite who is in exile in Babylon. He had been forced out of Israel, removed from his home, and had to live in a foreign nation. And there were many people like Daniel. Many Israelites like him who lived in exile. And many of those Israelites mourned in lonely exile. They longed to be home. And they, 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 they longed and they prayed that God would show up. That God would show up in such a way, in a manual way, where he would be present and he would be for them and he would have their backs and set them free. The carol has them praying to ransom captive Israel, which is like saying, God, please pay whatever price is necessary to get us out of this situation, to release us, ransom us. Now, what the Israelites probably didn't realize is that they weren't actually just captives of Babylon. They were captives of forces much bigger than Babylon. In fact, their captivity in Babylon was a symptom of their captivity to these other forces. The reason they were in exile was because of their captivity to sin. Right? God had told them, if you worship me alone and you follow my law, then you will get to remain in the land. But time and time again, they turned away from God, they turned to other gods, They refused to follow God's laws. And because they persisted in that, they ended up in exile. So, in order for Israel to truly be free, God had to ransom them, not just from Babylon, but from the power of sin, from the power of the devil, from the power of death. You know, if all God had done was ransom them from Babylon, then it wouldn't be long before they'd be back in exile again because they'd go back, they'd commit the same sins, they'd turn from God again, and they'd return to where they started. To truly be freed from lonely exile, Israel needed Emmanuel not just as uh, a military conquest or as an edict from a king saying you can go back to their to your home. They needed Emmanuel in a a way that would destroy the power of sin, death, and the devil. And of course, what we celebrate at Christmas is that God actually did just that, right? He did that by becoming with us in the most remarkable of ways, by being born as a human being. Through doing that, God was present with us in the most remarkable, unexpected way, as an incarnate deity. And not only was he present with us, no, no, he was also for us. He showed us that he has our backs by living uh, among us and by being patient with humanity and by suffering and dying on a cross for our sins. Just like the Israelites, we need the Son of God to appear in order to be ransomed from this captivity that we are in to sin and death and the devil. We are in exile. We long for our true home. We live in a world of injustice and suffering and loneliness and death. And we need Emmanuel. We need God to be present with us and to have our backs. Let's look at the next verse. O come, o come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height In ancient times, didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. If you've ever seen that old movie, The Ten Commandments, you know what this is referring to. After the 12 tribes of Israel were freed from slavery in Egypt, God gave them a law to follow as a nation. And he gave that law to Moses at a place called Mount Sinai. And when he did that, it was pretty terrifying. It was scary, as the song says. There was cloud and majesty and awe. In fact, when God did that, he warned the people, don't get too close. He said to Moses, tell the people, don't get too close. A very interesting passage. Book of Exodus, uh, chapter 19, starting verse 21. God says to Moses, go down and warn the people so so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Now, I think this passage right here is worthy of a sermon in itself, but what it seems to be saying is that when God appeared in his holiness and in his power, it was scary because like, if sinful human beings came too close, they could just die on the spot. And God was trying to prevent that from happening. And I find it so interesting that in this song, we ask for this God, this God of might, to show up. It's a little weird, isn't it? <laughs> because at the same time, this song is reminding us that in the past, when this God of might showed up, it was pretty scary. Right? He gave us a law that no one has been able to follow perfectly except for Jesus. Jesus. And when he revealed that law, his holy presence was so powerful that if a sinful human being came too close, they could end up dead. And yet here we are asking for this God of might to come to us. And of course, we're asking for that, not because we want the God of might to destroy us, but because we want the God of might to save us. But how can the God of might come close to us in a way that saves us rather than destroys us? And Christmas, of course, gives us the answer. God finds a way, right? He becomes incarnate. At Christmas, we remember that the same God who appeared in cloud and majesty and awe humbled himself so radically as to be born as a baby in Bethlehem. He humbled himself so that he could come to us without destroying us. Third verse. O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory, or the grave. Sorry about that. Now this verse begins with a name for Jesus that might be a little confusing for us. Why is he called the rod of Jesse? Well, that is a title that's actually taken from a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, which was written over 700 years before Jesus was born. And this is what it says. This is uh, from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. So the shoot from the stump of Jesse is a person who has the spirit of the Lord on him, right? And I didn't put this here, but the prophecy uh, goes on to say that uh, this person will judge with righteousness and people from all the nations will rally to this person and he's going to bring about justice. So what does it mean that this person will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, The King James Version says rod from the stump of Jesse. I like shoot more because we don't usually talk about branches calling them rods anymore. Um, But the King James Version used that language, so O Come, O Come, Emmanuel uses that language. But anyway, the point of the metaphor is to say that this person will be a descendant of David, a descendant of King David's line. Jesse was the father of King David. And so when it says that a shoot will spring up from the stump of Jesse, it uses that language because everybody thought that King David's line had ended. If you thought of King David's line like a tree, they thought it's been cut down. All that's left is a stump. And yet Isaiah is saying someone is going to rise up in the line of David and he will be this great king who will rally all the nations to him and and change the world. Now, you might be wondering, if you're like me, well, why not call him uh, someone who's coming from the stump of David? Why the stump of Jesse? That's kind of a weird way of putting it. Why talk about David's father? David's father was never a king. And the best answer I've heard to that question is because uh, Isaiah is trying to emphasize that this king is going to su- be superior to David. Um Every king after David was called the son of David. But this is the only king that's called a son of Jesse. Right? So the whole idea is this king is going to be even better, better than David. And the reason that this king is going to be superior is because as the song says, uh, he's not just going to deliver Israel from political problems. He comes to deliver us from Satan's tyranny and from the power of the grave. He comes to deliver us from the true sources of our captivity and exile. All right, verse four. This one, I love this one. This one might be my favorite of all. Oh, come now, dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Ah, that's awesome. I love that. So here Jesus is called, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with the slides this morning, aren't I? Here Jesus is called the day spring, the day spring, and that means sunrise. Makes sense, right? When the day springs to life, the sun rises. And he's called that because throughout scripture, our condition as human beings is described as a condition of being in darkness, right? We are in darkness because of this captivity to sin and death and the devil, And we need light to shine in from an outside source and illuminate the world that we're in. And again, the book of Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus, prophesied this inbreaking of light that was coming. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, In the future God will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. Now, Galilee, of course, is where Jesus lived and grew up and did his ministry, right? So, I don't think that's a coincidence. Uh, Continuing in verse 2, the prophecy says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, a dayspring. You have enlarged their nation and increased their joy. So the prophet is saying that in the future, by way of Galilee, a new day will come, a day that dispels the darkness. And if we skip ahead to verse 6, we're told that this new day will start, this light shining in the darkness, will begin with a child being born. It says, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, he's going to have a lot of authority. Uh, And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And of course, that promised child, that light in the darkness, was the baby born in Bethlehem. I find it so interesting that in this prophecy, this promised king is called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Did you notice that? Those are names that are only appropriate for God himself. It's idolatry to call a human being Everlasting Father or mighty God. And yet, here they are, 700 years before Jesus is born, and, and Isaiah is, is saying this, he's prophesying this, that a king is going to come who's called mighty God, an everlasting father. And not only that, he says that this, this king is immortal, right? Because he says that he's going to uphold his kingdom forever. What human being can uphold a kingdom forever? Now, I don't know if when Isaiah received this from God and and shared it, if he understood how this prophecy was going to be fulfilled. I kind of doubt it. I, I think he wasn't sure. And yet, he says this, right? And this prophecy implies that this king, this Messiah who is going to come is going to be more than just an ordinary human being. And of course, Jesus fulfilled that, right? Because Jesus was not just a human being but was God in the flesh. The song says, Dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. In other words, make us happy. (laughs) Give us joy. It's hard living in this world that's in darkness due to captivity to sin and death and the devil. And we need someone to bring us joy. And what can bring us joy is the advent or the appearance, the coming, of this new day into the world. And of course, at Christmas, we celebrate that the day spring has arrived and that he has brought a source of cheer that the world can never give us. All right, let's keep moving. We'll do these last three verses quickly. Verse 5, O come now, key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the way to, mi- to misery. Now, what does it mean to say, come key of David? Well, in Jewish idiom, if you wanted to express that someone had a lot of power and authority, you would say that they held the keys. I mean, I think we kind of still do that today, right? The, the keeper of the keys is the one with the power. And the key of David was... Very special because the key of David uh, was the key that held all the power, right? Because it had been prophesied that a descendant of David would be the one who would uphold uh, the world and have authority forever, as we just read. So, the key of David, to have the key of David, is to have the authority to rule forever. And uh, of course, this song is calling for that person, that prophesied person who has the authority to rule forever, to come and to open the way to heaven. Verse six: O come now, wisdom, from on high, and order all things far and nigh, to us the path of knowledge show, and cause us in her ways to go. What I appreciate about this one is it reminds us that Jesus doesn't just ransom us from sin and death. Jesus also reveals the truth to us. He is our source of wisdom. There's a verse in Colossians where the Apostle Paul says, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't facts worth knowing that Jesus never talked about. Jesus never talked about how to harness electricity or how to develop antibiotics or anything like that, and those are good things to know. So that's, that's not what this verse is saying, but what this verse is saying is that the most important things for us to know, the essentials of wisdom, who God is, how we should relate to God, how we should relate to each other, what's right and wrong, Those essentials are only found through Jesus Christ. You can't find that wisdom just by by looking at the Old Testament. We need Jesus too. You can't find that wisdom just by studying science or observing the world. You need a revelation from heaven, a revelation from God, and Jesus is that wisdom. Final verse. O come, desire of nations bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. So the final name for Jesus in this song is the desire of nations, which is a way of saying, come, king, who people all over the world long for. The good king who will set things right with the world. This king is not just for Israel. This king is for all nations. Now, I have to admit that as I reflected on this verse this week, I started to feel the longing that it expresses very deeply. Because I feel like we're pretty far from what it describes. And I'm not talking specifically about our church, but I just mean in the world, in our country, in the Christian church at large— You know, bind in one the hearts of all mankind, bid thou sad divisions cease. I don't think divisions have ceased yet. In fact, I don't know about you, but it feels to me like they're getting stronger. At least that's the uh, impression I get when I scroll through Twitter or my Facebook feed or I watch cable news. And as I see that division, and I hear the name-calling, and the sarcasm, and the pridefulness, and I see the inability of people to listen to each other, and confusion over what is true, I find myself praying these words, bid thou sad division cease. I think that the holidays are actually a time when we often feel our divisions more acutely, because the holidays bring together extended families. (laughs) And uh, most extended families have people in them with wildly different views, right? Especially wildly different political views. (laughs) So I want to say something to prepare us for that situation, something that might help us to bid thou sad division cease. Uh, something I've been thinking about lately. When Jesus picked his 12 disciples, among them, he included a man named Matthew the tax collector and a man named Simon the zealot. And what you might not realize is that these two men, in their day and age, were on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Because... In that time, uh, one of the most significant political issues was how to respond to the fact that everyone was under the authority of Rome in Israel. And some people just acquiesced to that. They said, pay your taxes to that pagan nation. Who cares? And people like Matthew, the tax collector, embodied that because he was a tax collector. He collected taxes from Jews, went around, said, pay your taxes, and then he gave them to Rome. Now, some Jews said, we can't tolerate that. And they were known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were so fanatical about not being under the authority of Rome that they even subscribed to violence to try and force the Romans out of Judea. So think about that for a moment. Jesus included in his 12 disciples a man known for helping to support the Romans and a man who supported the use of violence against the Romans. Opposite sides of the political spectrum. So what am I saying? I am not suggesting that our political opinions don't matter at all. And I'm not trying to say that every opinion out there, no matter how wildly to the right or to the left is equally valid. I'm not saying that. In fact, you know what? Jesus definitely criticized the use of violence in his own ministry, right? Which would have gone against Simon the Zealot's philosophy. He said things that would have been critical of all 12 of the disciples, He told them that they were wrong about stuff. So I am not trying to say that we should all just consider all political differences completely irrelevant, not worth talking about, inconsequential. I'm not saying that. But here's what I think we should learn from this. We should be able to be in relationship with each other and to listen to each other and to learn from each other even if we have wildly divergent views and we should be able to learn from Jesus together. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector traveled together. They did ministry together. They learned from Jesus together. And you know what? I bet they fought sometimes. I bet things got heated. But they managed to live in community. And I wouldn't be surprised if they learned from each other, too. So... If Jesus picked both a tax collector and a zealot to be in his 12 disciples, you can bet that if he were picking disciples today, he would have a Republican and a Democrat in the group. Okay? And I'm sure Jesus would say things that would offend the Democrat. I'm sure he'd say things that would offend the Republican. Like Jesus, we need to value relationships more than political labels. And again that doesn't mean that our views don't matter at all. It doesn't mean that there aren't some political positions that go against the will of Christ and do harm. But it means that we should be willing to love and to listen and learn from Jesus together despite our disagreements. And I think we will find that the more that we do that, the more unified our perspective will become, the more our hearts will bind as one and our sad divisions will cease but it might take a lot of time and a lot of patience. To conclude, I want to say something about one last part of the song, one thing I haven't mentioned, which is the refrain, right? After every verse, there's the same refrain over and over. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. And what I want us to notice is that this song is telling Israel to rejoice as it waits, right? It's written from the perspective of people who are still waiting for Emmanuel, still longing in exile, and it encourages them, don't wait in despair. Rejoice. Now, I think we're in a much better situation than Israel was when they were in exile. I mean, you know, we can rejoice that Emmanuel has come. He was born in Bethlehem, He was crucified, he was raised from the dead, and he lives in us through his spirit now. But there is still a sense in which we, like Israel, are still waiting. Right? Because now we're waiting for the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to finish. Fulfilling God's promises. We're waiting to experience the total victory over sin and death and the devil. Jesus already secured that victory. He won that victory for us through the cross, but we're still waiting to experience the full effects of that freedom, that victory that He secured for us. And like Israel, as we wait, we should rejoice. We're called to have confidence. God will be faithful. He will fulfill his promises. We won't always feel like we're in exile. We won't always feel death's dark shadow. We won't always feel Satan's influence. The world won't always be a mess of sad divisions. And Christmas should fill us with hope as we wait because it's a reminder that God really is Emmanuel, that he is present and he's got our backs. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this ancient song. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it to stir our hearts to wonder. I pray that if any of us feel like we are longing uh, for peace and for um, For health and for justice and our longing is is not yet fulfilled, I pray that we would be able to sing this in solidarity with people of faith who have waited patiently for you throughout history. Lord, allow us to let this song give expression to that longing that we feel and at the same time allow it to give us confidence that you are Emmanuel, that you are with us and for us that you will fulfill your promises and that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.